the latest Edwin Co podcast. This uh, episode is part one of a two-part series on cladding and EWS1 forms. Uh, my name is Harry Rudolph. I'm an associate in the property department here at Edwin Co LLP. I'm joined today by my colleague Nada Alansari, who is a fellow associate in the property department. Hello, Nada. Hi, Harry. Hello, Nada. And I'm joined by Tim Clark, an associate in the property litigation department. Hi, Tim. Hi. Hi, Harry. So uh, we thought we would just come together today and have an informal chat on this area of law, considering it is extremely complicated. And there are many questions that flat owners have on this. So we are hoping to try and break this down to an understandable level. So first of all, Nada, um, all these terms are banded about in the national press, but many people don't know what they mean. To start off simply, what is cladding? Harry, that's a great place to start. Um, it's not as straightforward as we think. Um, one definition I heard is cladding is the skin of the building. Uh, and I think that's a good way to describe it. Um, it's the application of one material over another um, for purposes such as weatherproofing, thermal insulation, or just simply uh, to improve the appearance of the building. Um, but it's been a very controversial area recently, and I've been seeing different news stories pretty much every week, uh, almost every few days. Um, so, Tim, can you tell us why, why has it been making the news? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think a week goes by where you don't read or hear stories in the press about cladding and all the issues that, that people are facing, which are massive at the moment. Um Cladding really has been in the news over the last few years, ever since the Grenfell uh, fire, where a block of flats had combustible cladding on the outside, as we now all know, which caused a fire in one of the apartments to spread between um, flats. And the combustible materials on the outside of the building were one of the main causes, which meant that the fire could spread so easily and so quickly between flats. Um, the Grenfell uh, uh, inquiry has, has been happening in the years after the, the tragedy itself and has been looking in two parts. Firstly, at what happened, at what went wrong, and the fire services um, response to the, to the actual fire. And the second phase, which is, which is ongoing now, is looking at who's responsible, where were the failings that caused the fire, uh, and how it can be uh, ensured that the, the tragedy on that kind of level never happens uh, again. One of the main issues that has come to light post-Grenfell is the uh, compartmentation of flats within a block. So the idea that where you have a block of flats, each flat is in itself a self-contained fireproof box. And as a result, blocks of flats ha have what's called a, a stay put fire uh, evacuation policy, which means that that compartmentation of your flat should keep your uh, uh, flat insulated from any fire that's in the uh, common parts for, for a specific amount of time, usually about half an hour. And if there is any uh, uh, failure in that compartmentation, such as at Grenfell, then um, those the fire can spread quickly through through the building, and so there's been a change, as I say, from a stay put policy, which is which is where you stay in your flat until the fire service arrive, to a simultaneous evacuation policy, 
which is the idea that where there is a fire in the common parts, the fire alarm will go off and everyone will then leave their, uh, leave their flat and go outside. So that's been uh, quite a big shift in, in that regard. So a lot of issues have come out of Grenfell. Uh, today we're talking about cladding, but with cladding issues, it just it has opened a can of worms, as, as you said, Tim. Um, there are all kinds of issues from the insufficient cavity barriers and um, poor workmanship often when there are inspections. So it's it's not it's it's just a really big problem. I mean, I was just reading the other day about how uh, owners of a building in Bethnal Green are facing up to 150,000 pounds in repairs to each flat owner to make their homes fire safe and compliant with all of these regulations. Um, it's not just limited to cladding, and I think people need to know that. Mm. So, Harry. So, Harry, you wrote a blog about this last year. Can you can you tell us what changes were made as a result of the Grenfell tragedy? Yes, of course. So, first of all, uh, one major change that happened uh, in sort of financial terms was in 2019, specifically December 2019, the external wall system or the external wall system process shortened to EWS and resulting EWS one form were launched by the banking trade bodies UK Finance and the Building Societies Association, as well as the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors in order to give clarity to lenders and comfort for buyers when they're buying a residential flat post Grenfell. Uh, Tim, you have spoken previously about uh, the Building Safety Fund and Waking Watch Relief Fund. Can you can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, thanks, Harry. So after Grenfell, as the inquiry was ongoing, the government really faced an issue which is incredibly complicated in nature, which is who should pay for the cladding remedial works. There are millions of flats in the UK which have unsafe cladding. That at the time of their construction, the cladding was deemed to be uh, safe and part of normal building uh, good practice. So the change that stemmed from Grenfell really led the government to think, well, who should pay and how can we alleviate the massive costs that are going to be have to be borne by uh, leaseholders? Because the issues are several fold. It's issues to do with insurance law, with construction law, with property law, with landlord and tenant law. I mean, it's it's hugely complicated and intricate. So the government looked at the problem and said, well, it's not leaseholders' fault. If anything, it's the industry's fault in using these combustible materials. And also it's the failure of building regulations, because often these buildings were signed off as compliant at the time for building regulation sign-off. But we now know that clearly, from a common sense perspective, they can't have been compliant in that they use combustible materials. So the government launched uh, the Building Safety Fund, which was to apply to uh, buildings over 18 metres high, whereby you could apply for the remedial works to your cladding to be picked up by the government, so long as you had uh, a specification of works for those uh, remedial works in place. But the problem then was, well, what about the temporary mitigation measures which these buildings would have to employ until the cladding was remediated? Because where there is unsafe cladding, there is an obligation on the freeholder to not just sit back and say, well, we've got unsafe cladding, but you know, in, in a few years' time, we'll remediate it, so it'll be fine. 
that doesn't go far enough. The freeholder has to take temporary mitigation measures to mitigate the risk to the health and safety of the occupants within the building. And usually they do that by employing a waking watch. Now, these waking watch staff uh, go through, walk through the building and uh, their job is to uh, evacuate the occupants as soon as they notice any fire. And they're incredibly expensive, usually several thousand pounds a week um, for, for a few of these members of staff. So building owners were having to pay these costs until such time as the cladding remedial works were undertaken, but those costs weren't able to be recovered through the Building Safety Fund. So the government then introduced the Waking Watch Relief Fund to pay for those works. Um, Harry, you've touched on the EWS1 form. So what exactly is that and what's the process there? Yes, Tim. So um, the EWS1 form was a result of the changes that I mentioned just a little while ago. This is a form carried out to assess the safety of a residential block with particular reference to fire safety. Now, originally, it was only meant to be uh, for buildings which were over 18 metres in height. But in 2020, uh, it was extended essentially to any building with some form of combustible cladding, which may require remedial works. As a result of this, many lenders' default positions was to demand an EWS1 EWS form for any apartment block, whether the block was either new or was developed many, many years ago with no cladding on the outside of the building. Nada, could you maybe just uh, tell us why EWS1 forms are causing so many problems for flat owners? Well, Harry, you explained it really well just now. Lenders have been demanding an EWS1 form for all buildings, even if one is not actually required. And this is what's causing a huge backlog and people are just stuck because everyone now needs an EWS1. Um, I was actually reading in the Times, there was a ridiculous number. It says that it's... It, how, how many millions of flats are affected by this now? Yeah, towards the end of last year, I read it was about 1.5 million flats that are currently affected by this. But I think this number has just gone up and up uh, ever, ever since then. And, and again, one of the main reasons, I think, is because if an apartment block does not reach a certain level of safety standard, a, a flat owner will find it increasingly difficult to sell or even remortgage their flat and will be stuck in the property until the cladding uh, issues or safety issues are fixed. And depending on what needs to be done, this could take many, many years. Furthermore, if an EWS1 form is not even issued, the sellers will have to wait until one has been done until they can properly sell their property. There are currently around 300 experts who can issue these kinds of forms. So you can imagine that there is a huge backlog to try and get these forms done for residential blocks around the UK. Uh, the government has funded a training programme to get more surveyors au fait with, with what these forms include. But of course, the benefits of this will take time to filter through. One of the uh, that's a really good point, Harry. I mean, one of the one of the massive things that we're seeing in in the dispute side is freehold owners who are trying to put the cost of the remedial works through the service charge, and people will often come to us and ask what they can do about this. And the short answer is, it really depends on what your lease says. 
So within every lease, or certainly all modern leases, there will be provisions in there which set out the amounts that your landlord can charge you through your service charge and what proportion of those costs you as the individual leaseholder, flat owner, will have to meet. Often, as we've touched on in this talk, those remedial works can be well into the hundreds of thousands or, or millions of pounds. And so leaseholders, quite rightly, are concerned about what they can do about this. Um, there have been a few cases which have gone through the courts on this point, and those cases have said that where there are the relevant lease terms which set out that uh, a landlord is entitled to charge things to do with the cost to do with the health and safety of the building or with complying with relevant legislation, then those costs can be put through the service charge so long as they're reasonable. And I think you'd be hard pressed to find a judge who would say that the remedial works that are urgently needed to a building to make it health and safety and fire safety compliant would not be reasonable in those circumstances. So it's a real problem and one which, as we've said, is widespread and the government is doing something to try and accommodate. So, um, Harry and Nada, what, what changes have you guys seen being proposed to fix these problems? Thanks for that, Tim. Um, I actually wrote a blog on this very recently. Um, the Royal in Institute of Chartered Surveyors have been consulting on, um, on draft guidance, which sets out criteria based on government advice to assist valuers in deciding when an EWS1 form is not required. So what they're trying to do with this guidance is to narrow down the number of buildings that actually require the EWS1 rather than taking a blanket approach on all buildings, which is why there is such a big backlog. And also in November, the government um, and other associations had to reach an agreement that buildings without cladding would no longer need an EWS1 to be sold or remortgaged. It seems kind of obvious, but they had to they had to put that in, in writing um, for people to, to follow. So we're expecting the uh, results of the consultation this month in February, um, and hopefully that may provide more guidance to, to lenders and, and others on how to proceed with the EWS ones. Yes, no, it's very much up in the air. And, um, you know, we, we will have to wait and see what these uh, updates will, will lead to. Um, so that is the end of our first podcast on cladding and EWS1 forms. We hope that you found this helpful. Um, our contact details will be in the description for this podca podcast. Um, and if you've got any questions you wish to answer, it wish asked to answer for you in the second podcast, then please do send them to, to one of us. Uh, it's like, so we are taking questions on this topic. So if you have any cladding related questions or would like to share your experience, please do send us an email and we will discuss them in the next episode. Please do visit the Edwin Co website or contact us to learn more about the topics discussed in this episode. So just want to sign off and say thank you, Nada. Thank you, Tim, for joining me today. Cheers. Thanks, Harry. Thank you very much. And I will see you for the second episode.